Welcome back to the Willow Center Podcast. My name is Chase Cotton. I am your host, along with my colleague... Hi, I'm Mason Christie here with the Willow Center. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. This is episode seven of season three. And we are thrilled to have our longtime friend and colleague, Betsy. Betsy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Betsy Schuler, and I'm with the Drug Court here in Hendricks County. The Drug Court. We're going to dive all up into what the Drug Court is and what it means and why you're in charge of it. But the general topic of this month's episode is restorative justice. If you're not familiar with what restorative justice is, um, we're going to do our best to define that for you and to define especially what it's not as well um, in the context of the questions that we ask Betsy. Um, but before we do that, we just want to remind you that coming up next month in September, it is Recovery Awareness Month in the United States. We're really excited to uh, interview uh, uh, an alumni of the Willow Center. Um, he was uh, in one of the treatment programs a few years ago and completed that successfully and continued on into recovery management for a while. And now he's, he's actively involved in um, the NA community throughout central Indiana. And we're just, we're just stoked to reintroduce our listeners to him. So be sure you tune in next month for uh, Recovery Awareness Month in the month, month of September. Without further ado, let's dig into restorative justice. So Betsy, give us a little bit of background on why you're in the position you're in and how the drug court got started. And as you're discussing that, can you tell us about like what actually is it? So, uh, I've been in probation. I just started my 36th year of probation. Woo! <laughs> Not sure about that, but, um, and so I started, you know, working with, um, child abuse. I started working with, um, I started working with, um, juveniles. I worked with sex offenders. I, um, came to Indiana and I worked with mental health and substance abuse cases um, both, most of the cases I've had throughout the years have involved substance abuse. Okay. Um, about 13 years ago, I would say, I don't really remember the date, but, um, there were several of us that, um, wanted at the same time to do something different. Yeah. And, uh, I talked to my boss at the time who was Todd McCormick and he, uh, connected me with judge Smith who I already worked for as a probation officer. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, judge is looking to do something different too. And I, cause I was like, why don't we have a drug court? Yeah. And, um, and we just worked on it along with a couple of the prosecutors, Lauren Delp, who's the prosecutor right now and right. myself and the deputy chief prosecutor, Lindsay Walker. And I worked on it a long time. And then the judge would, uh, did, had the final approval and we got certified. Yeah, that's awesome. You, you make it sound very nonchalant, but I, I know because I know all of the people on that particular Hendricks County government dream team that that was a lot of hard work. And behind that hard work, there's an element of really incredible compassion for what actually helps. So something you kept saying just a moment ago was we wanted to do something different. What do you mean? Different from what? Well, it when I first started working with specifically OWI cases, possession cases, anything that had to do with substance abuse, oftentimes the same thing was happening on every case. So the person would have to get a substance abuse evaluation. They'd have to go to a victim impact panel. Um, they would do community service. We, we, it was kind of a cookie cutter plan and maybe the prosecutor wouldn't agree with that, but uh, and I said, the same people are coming through the system over and over. What can we do differently? And I yeah. knew that uh, Marion County had had a drug court when I worked there. I didn't know a lot about it, but I, I thought, why not try some alternative method that 
that could help people so that they stop coming into the system because what we're doing currently is not working. And, and obviously I believe this is working. Yeah. So to be clear, drug court is not something that just exists in Henders County. No, it, I don't know how many counties currently it is in every few months I hear of a new, something new coming. Uh, but yeah, all the donut counties, I believe have a drug court now, um, from, of Marion County. Okay. That's great. So, uh, we're skipping down the questions a little bit here, which is fine. We'll come back and, and talk more theoretical. But since we're on the drug court program right now, can you tell us a little bit more about like just how a problem solving court like that actually works? You know, is there any evidence to show they work better or worse than you know what was happening before that you just described? There, there is evidence, and and you know every drug court is different. Um, this started uh, in the late '80s uh, in uh, Miami Dade County because again they were seeing a huge influx. Uh, flux of cocaine and crack coming in and the judges there wanted to do something different and um you know it just kept going okay so every drug court is different Uh, there are a lot of drug courts that are a year long there are a lot of drug courts that are considered kind of diversionary um or or the cases you know so where the case is dismissed at the end Mm -hmm. ours is not that way ours is a post-conviction model and it is two years in length, uh, minimum. Yeah. Uh, we have five phases to our drug court program. Uh, the first phase is a stabilization phase. It's two months long. The next three are six months long. And the final phase is four months. That's only if the people can progress at the rate that they're supposed to, yeah. to do it. And most people do. Yeah. Sorry, can you tell us more specifically about those phases and what is involved in moving from phase to phase? Sure. So phase one, and I always struggle to remember this, um, involves going to intensive outpatient treatment. Uh, Intensive outpatient treatment is nine hours a week. Uh, Then there's also individual counseling once a week. They have to do two self-help meetings a week. They come see me once a week. They go to court once a week, and they have to get a sponsor. Um, in order to progress, they, oh, they I should also say that they um, have to do drug screens randomly with a minimum of three per week. Mm. Sometimes there's an, a- an added one thrown in there. Yeah. Um, they, they have to start working with the sponsor. You know, we, we ask them to sign releases for their sponsor, even, even though it's an anonymous program, most sponsors are willing to do that. Right. So that they can help the pr- them progress through our program. And, you know, I mean, it's really only anonymous for, if they want it to be anonymous, their anonymity. And so it's been a great collaboration with them, honestly. Um, And I'm curious, right? So you you said the first phase is the stabilization phase. And then you went on to describe about 10 hours of counseling and substance use treatment on top of going to court and meeting with you. And so... In that stabilization phase, w- like, why does that have to be so intense? Like, and, and have you, does that seem to, like, work for the program? It does work for the program. Most of the people that we see uh, in the first 60 days are just getting off substances. Right. Um, or they've been incarcerated, and they're just getting out of incarceration. Mm. And a lot of times, it being a brain disease, they, they, they're like, hey, I'm out of jail if nobody's watching me, then I'm not going to not stop using. Right. And um, they, it's, 
it keeps them busy. It keeps them occupied. It keeps their brain occupied. It keeps them away from the people and places and things that they were doing previously that was allowing them the accessibility to drugs and alcohol. That's huge. So they complete that stabilization phase. And then once they've met those requirements for that first six months, correct? 60 days. 60 days, sorry. Mm -hmm. Then how do they move up to phase two? And what's phase two, three, or four look like? So phase two, they're still in intensive outpatient treatment to begin the phase. Um, The same, really nothing changes with counseling at that point or court. Um, They do at that point start seeing me every other week Mm -hmm. and they go, but but they're still going to court every week. Yeah. They are at that point calling the drug line. So they're not day reporting anymore. Every time they call, the, they have to report. They're either, they're either drug screening and breathalyzing or just doing a breathalyzer. So it, it's, there's not a lot of change in two. In three, they are out of intensive outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. They're um, going to recovery management at that point. They are also doing individual treatment. Um, but halfway through, if they're progressing and their counselor recommends it, they can actually go to every other week for individual counseling. Yeah. Um, phase three, they're only going to court every other week. Okay. Um, they're adding a 12-step meeting actually back in phase two once they've complete intensive outpatient treatment. Yeah. Um, but they're actively working with their sponsor the whole time. Right. So it's not just like fluctuation in like treatment and, and correctional appointments. like. There's, it's almost like a, a trade-off for more community support. So you're Absolutely. trading the treatment and the court support to like every day, the, the stuff that you need to re-enter that community in a, in a really stable way. Yeah, and the idea too is that by phase three, that they have the buy-in, that they enjoy going to their meetings. And honestly, I think most people do. Um, that's where their community is. Right. And Go ahead. And just to like clarify, that's eight months in, right? That's two. There's two in the stabilization phase. They move up to phase two. There's six more months there, and so if there's not a buy-in by eight months, there's another. There's underlying issues, most likely. That would be my opinion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, are we on phase four? Yeah. Phase four. Phase four. <laughs> um, they're going to individual counseling once a month. Um, unless their counselor recommends otherwise or unless they want to attend counseling more, which often happens. A lot of people really enjoy going to counseling. They really get a lot out of it. They get their families involved with counseling. It's it's just really helpful. Um, They're still going to um, AA the same amount of time or NA, any type of support group. Um, They're only seeing me once a month at that point. At that point, also their their, – curfew changes they get another hour of curfew um phase and then phase five they 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 are going uh it's they have to start working on their project they have to or or they have to mentor somebody Uh, most of them choose to do a project and it's been really kind of cool yeah tell us about some of the projects you've witnessed over your years a lot of them do reports on how the program has affected them. I have someone right now working on a project to take to another county about our drug court. Oh, neat. It's, I'm really excited to see it. Um, what a, in the past, we've had someone provide dinner to Ronald McDonald House for all cool. the families. Um, there's just really, I mean, they're just kind of inventive, but we leave it kind of up to the person and to the counselor to see what they think is appropriate and mm-hmm. what the person can do. I love that. So to the untrained ear, it sounds a lot like 
drug court has a lot to do with treatment because we keep talking about all these changes in treatment. And then, of course, there's the court dates and the meetings with you and the reporting. So that that begs sort of this more theoretical question. What's what's the difference here between a problem solving court like this and, and like typical responses to whether it's substance use or other other charges like this? Because typically, if you commit a crime, be it substance related or not, you're getting the hammer. You know, and that hammer is important, right? I think it has a role to play, but it sounds like this is different than just the hammer. Can you tell us what the theoretical difference is there between that sort of punishment and this more like treatment-oriented restoration type stuff? Yeah, so I kind of look at this as uh, restorative justice light. Um, So drug court, so restorative justice is, is like curing the harm, fixing the harm that the crime has done, right? Yeah. Instead of... A punishment and and what we do is we work with the victims in this fa- in this case being the person themselves right. who has the disease as well as the families who are who also ha- are part of the disease it's a family disease it's a family yeah. disease and um so we include everybody you know the judge in court which is such an important aspect of drug court which mm-hmm. i don't want to forget that um the judge's interaction i think is huge for these participants because um, they, he gets to know them. He gets to know their families. He gets to, um, engage them. He's not just one case after the other, after the, uh, the next, you right. know? And, and so I think that they really kind of look forward to coming to court. I mean, we have graduates that can continue to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a big difference. I think people like to feel like somebody cares about him. Yeah. You know, that we're just not saying check, 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 and, you know, assembly line probation, assembly line, not knowing anything about you, you yeah. know, and right. and I, I, I really feel like that's a big aspect of it. That's huge. I appreciate that. What role do treatment providers and correctional professionals play in collaboration with each other throughout this restorative justice uh, process? <laughs> I am a big believer that the collaboration should always happen, whether it's in this program or any type of probation. Yeah. Uh, I, I have always, in the 35-plus years that I've done probation, have always staffed every case with the treatment team, uh, no matter what type of programming that is. Sure. Uh, I'm by no means the expert. Um, so the collaboration, I mean, it just, God, is crucial. Yeah. It's, it's uh, if, I, if I don't talk to a counselor at least twice a day, I I would never know what's going on. I I do, would not know how the person is progressing. Mm-hmm. I would not know w- how to approach them. I wouldn't know if I was doing them harm. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and to me, that is just is just that important. Yeah. The feeling is mutual, just for the record. Yeah. Thank I, you. I think there's there's this common misnomer, um, I think especially in the field of substance use treatment in particular, mm-hmm. even as compared to just general mental health, that it's either or. Right. Right. That it's either corrections or it's treatment. Mm-hmm. And I just frankly don't think that's true. <laughs> because yeah. there are there are a lot of us who've who've gone through this experience that find our rock bottom by, I'll say, the grace of the correctional system. Mm-hmm. Even though, yes, there are holes in it and there are problems that need to be fixed, in the same way that there are holes and problems to be fixed in the treatment field, right? some of us might not ever get into treatment if it weren't for the courts and the prosecutors and the law enforcement teams and the awesome people like you in the background doing the really hard work of 
every week, like like consulting and progress measuring and developing and coaching, like that's not that's not something you can just let go of in favor of something else. It has to be both sides of that equation. I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, the criminal justice side of it holds people accountable. Not that treatment doesn't, but it does give that leverage that kind of a lot of people need, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. to continue to take that next step forward. Right. And I, and I think that when that there, there is maybe a misconception um for some treatment facilities or some people, you know, that are more used to punitive justice, you know, at the, whatever your role is in that system where it's like, oh, they're in treatment, so they don't really need me. Or they're in, you know, a correctional facility. How, how far can they really get? And both those mindsets are in, incredibly flawed because it's the systems working together that can really foster the growth that the client or wh- whomever really needs. I agree. That's huge. So tell us about the positive differences you've seen, right? You've seen dozens of lives changed here in Hendricks County. I have. Give us some specific examples if you can. So I believe we have had, where did I write this? 77, I believe, graduates from the program. Um, Not all of those people have stayed sober. Um, A lot of them have relapsed. A lot of them have gotten new offenses. Now, not as many as in the first few years sure um but the really positive thing about those graduates is even though they may relapse when they get out of drug court they know what to do next Mm. their relapses are much shorter they know who to call without judgment they know that they can call me they know that they can call the willow center they know that we are still there to help You know, and I think that is huge. You know, we look at recidivism and everybody defines recidivism differently. Even within the correctional system, we define it differently. I didn't know that. We do. So we may, and I, again, in drug court, we have to track cases for three years to provide to the state. But but, uh, the Department of Corrections could say, okay, well, we're going to track them, and I'm kind of making this up, but like every five years. And they could say, okay, we're only tracking recidivism as someone who comes back to the facility, Mm. not, you know, if they get probation or they get some other sentence. And so it's really hard to define recidivism within this system. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and so I keep in contact with a huge group of graduates and I mean and a lot of them have relapsed and and that's okay it's part it's not always part of the disease but it can be part of this disease and and the fact that they're willing to be honest and open because that's something that they learned in our program or in treatment or in some type of recovery program to me is a success yeah yeah because ultimately like what you're teaching them in, in collaboration with the treatment center, what, what we're teaching them too is is not just how to avoid substances, it's how to live a, a, a recovery lifestyle. Absolutely. It includes like skills development and education and coping skill management and like reintegrating into the community in, in the more practical ways, like getting a career again and getting your driver's license back and getting housing, like all of that is part of it. Very holistic. You know, it's it's not just about the disease of addiction, although the disease of addiction affects every part of our lives. Right. But it is truly 
I mean, sometimes we don't ever talk about addiction. Right. I mean, actually, when we go, when we're about halfway through, we probably never talk about it in my office other than yeah. if something happens with a drug screen. But we're talking about what's going on with their families, what's going on with their kids, you know. How can we, how could you do something different? Mm. You know, we do role playing. We, you know, we do all kinds of things. It's not, it's, but it's not always focused just on addiction. Yeah. I appreciate that. Is there like one particular graduate story and you can keep it anonymous that, that touches your heart? Just one that, that kind of sticks with you. Oh, one. I mean, honestly, Chase, I love every single graduate. Like I, yeah. I see how hard they work. I look at it as such a strength. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that somebody can say, you know what? I struggled and I have worked this hard to get better. Yeah. I mean, it, it gives me chills. I mean, it is, it is just why I'm here. Yeah. You know, it is why I wouldn't do any other form of probation at this point. Yeah. Love that. And so if you could give any advice to a person who has offered a plea agreement involving some kind of problem solving court program, similar to drug court or maybe something Hmm. different, uh, what would that advice be? Well, obviously, I always recommend drug court. (laughs) Um, I would tell them that it is the worst, best thing that they could do. The worst, Um, best thing they could mm -hmm. do. And the hardest thing that they will do. You know, it is easy to go sit in jail. It is easy to go sit in the Department of Corrections. Probably nobody wants to do that. This is hard. But they are worth doing this. You know, the fact that that you you yourself can dictate how this goes Mm. you know is is really focused on them you know it's what they want yeah yeah i think it's really interesting how much autonomy is preserved in the process because like i'm sure especially for like phase oneers it feels like oppression (laughs) oh but 100 but like there's a tremendous amount of choice even number one, even getting a plea agreement like that, where it's like either you can go back to jail or do this, right? One hundred percent, yeah. Choice in that, but there's also choice in every moment you have to show up for it, right? Every appointment you have the choice to show up for that treatment. Every meeting with you, every drug screen, every court date, you have the choice, and all of that. Whereas in jail, you don't really have those choices. You're just there. Yeah. I mean, you have to follow the rules in any type of correctional facility. Right. So, I mean, we have rules, of course, but every week. They either do what they're supposed to do or they don't do what they're supposed to do. If they do what they're supposed to do, they get an affirmation. On ours, we give them a punch on a punch card, you know? If they don't do what they are supposed to do, they get a sanction. And then the following week, it starts over. Right. It's it's not something that if you mess up last week, we're going to still hold against you this week. It's every week it renews. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that that speaks to uh, especially the part that you were saying about this is the hardest best thing you're going to do because yeah to sit in a correctional facility is easy and many times what gets people to you know wherever they are in life is not taking that active step reaching out and so to accept a plea agreement like this is to say like okay i'm willing i'm willing to do this and so I would say, like, have courage in that because it is a hard first step. But as you take that plea agreement, know that, you know, 
It's going to get better. You're going to get through phase one or whatever that looks like in your program. Yeah. But it's not going to be easy. And, you know, we have we have people in higher phases that are supportive to the people in the newer phases, which Ooh, is even neat. more of an incentive for them to do well. You yeah. know, they they build their community within the structures of drug court. And, I mean, people come to their court hearings they don't even have to come to just to support each other. That's neat. It's, it's pretty fabulous. So in a similar vein of, of providing advice, on the off chance that there might be, like, a, another county's local, you know, municipality leader that is listening in right now, and they're considering looking into developing some sort of restorative justice service, be it a problem-solving court or otherwise, what advice would you give to that local leader? I would say definitely to look into problem-solving courts. I believe they're kind of what the future of court systems and probation are going to look like. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I don't have control over that, but... Um, I'd say if you decide to do a problem-solving court, check to see if someone surrounding you, another surrounding county, has one. Make them a mentor court. Um, Don't reinvent the wheel. Um, There's a lot of help out there and support from other counties. Um, We all support each other, and um, we we can learn from each other. Yeah, that's great advice. Betsy, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for your compassion. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you for your waking up every day and continuing to pour into these folks that need pouring into uh it's just you know it's an inspiration and it's not something that we at the willow center take lightly so thank you we're grateful for your partnership that has been episode seven of season three of the willow center podcast next month as i mentioned in the introduction next month is recovery awareness month so be sure to tune in for that celebration of long-term recovery uh, there's going to be likely some some awesome community events happening here in central Indiana. So if you're, you're in the greater Indianapolis area or any of the donut counties, I, I recommend that you get on the, uh, the your preferred social media uh, profile and, and, and look at some of the local 12-step groups, some of the local treatment agencies, check out what's happening in your community, and go to one of those celebrations. Recovery's got to be public. Recovery's got to be big and bold and brave uh, and that's what's ultimately going to save even more lives in this collective journey we're on so again thank you for listening i've been your host chase cotton and i'm mason we'll catch you next month